You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Have you got an idea for a podcast? Let's hear it. Acast is your all-in-one podcast platform for recording, editing, publishing, and monetizing. We've got you covered. Getting started is quick, easy, and free. Head to ACAST.com to join today. Hello, I'm Keith Arthur, and this is the Strange Boat Podcast. Joining me on board today is an angler with many hats. He's represented his hometown as a member of parliament, a place where he's carried anglings fights on many occasions and still finds time to catch more than a few special fish. We might even get to visit the poop deck. Martin Salter, welcome aboard. Welcome aboard, Keith. I hope the boat's not too rocky today. No, no, it's not heading down to the Thames Estuary with a dump of uh, sl- with a dump of slurry either. So we, we we will undoubtedly talk about that, I'm sure. But but first things first. Can you just remind me what your current roles are in our wonderful sport? Oh, I don't know really. I, uh, it depends which morning uh, it is when I wake up. I'm uh, I'm president of Reading and District uh, Association, uh, and uh, I chair their fishery management committee. And it was a pleasure to see you at the Reading and District Open Day uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, so I, I put a fair bit of voluntary work into uh, uh, helping drive my my local club forward, and I'm pleased to say that's going in the right direction. I work part-time for the Anglin Trust. Uh, I help them with policy and with campaigns. Uh, So I think the title is something like Chief Policy Advisor. Um, So I'm involved with that. Um, And I do a bit of other voluntary work uh, in in Reading as well. And in between doing all those things, uh, I like to get out fishing. So uh, I'm I'm sort of active semi-retired is probably the best way of describing me or active semi-retarded at times. (laughs) Well, that's not a bad description. But when did you get into our, our wonderful sport? Where did it all kick off? Well, uh, you and I are sort of West, well, London boys, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, you were North London and I was West London. So my family worked around the airport area. So I was, I was born in Bedfont. Not a lot of fishing in Bedfont, to be fair to be said. And uh, a bit later on, my dad moved to Ashford. And my first fish was caught 
in some of those gravel pits on the on the Bedfont Ashford Road, which I think are probably all filled in now, not too far from Felton Borstal, I think. Uh, uh, but sorry, it was the inevitable small perch. Um, and then when the family moved out to, in, towards the Egham Stones area, uh, I obviously had the, the pleasure of fishing places like Runnymead and the tiny little river Bourne, uh, all those areas now, a lot of which are unfortunately covered with motorways. And so, yeah, I learned my, I learned my fishing primarily, I think, at the, uh, at the hands of Englefield Green Angling Association. And they had a, a thriving junior section. Every Saturday morning, we used to get on our bikes. Wonderful old guy that you've heard me talk about before called Eddie Batley. He was a greenkeeper at Leyland Golf Course. And he used to give up his Saturday morning, meet us uh, by the tackle shop, shillings worth of maggots. Uh, all, the gear was on our bikes and we would pedal off to the River Bourne or the Thames at Leyland or the Thames at Runnymede or the River Colne uh, up towards Raysbury. Um, nothing to cycle five, six, seven, eight miles uh, for a, a Saturday morning's fishing. And... Uh, yeah, I did quite well in the junior section after a couple of years. And then as juniors, me and my mate Ian used to start to fish the senior matches. And that went really well uh, until we made the mistake of winning, getting the first and second prize. Ironically, at the Thames near Reading uh, on one Christmas match. So we, uh, I think at the tender age of 12, we went home with a bottle of whiskey and a, and a turkey. Uh, from that <laughs> day onwards, Englefield Green stopped juniors fishing the Christmas match, which I thought was rather mean-spirited. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's not uh, it's not the best thing, not the kindest thing to do, is it? Although maybe the bottle of whiskey could have been turned into Lucas Aid or something. But uh, yeah, it's it's uh, the clubs do tend to be like that, don't they? The old uh, the old Blazer Brigade they don't tend to like youngsters going through very much. Oh no, they, they, they were they were pretty good guys. I mean, I've got happy memories of uh, meeting outside the working men's club in in Egham at, at five o'clock on Saturday morning and getting the uh, getting the coach down to the bat and ball. I mean, how we didn't get lung cancer? No, I, I mean everyone was chain smoking on those old jalopies, and uh, uh, yeah, like a lot of club fishing back in those days in the sixties and seventies, Keith, there were you know a lot of very average anglers. It, it was the day out. It was a social thing. And there would probably be two or three really exceptional fishermen who, who could clearly were on the edge of going onto the open circuit. And, you know, I was, I've always been a sponge and I would sit behind those guys if I didn't draw a decent peg or I wasn't catching. And I, I would absorb information. And I was that irritating kid that was, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that, mate? Why have you got the line coming off the top of the centre pin? Uh, why have you got your floats shotted like that? And uh, many times I was told to go away. But, uh, yeah, I learned a lot. And uh, I mean, on a, on a serious note, uh, what we have to do is recognise just how important club fishing is. And clubs like Reading, clubs like Farnham, club, clubs like Godalming, whatever. Uh, it, it, it's not just about providing fishing opportunities. You can get lots of fishing opportunities on day tickets. But what clubs can create is that pathway from the occasional angler into the lifelong angler. Uh, and a lot of the work I'm doing at the moment uh, with Redmond District, I know other clubs are doing the same, is to look at how we can move on from kids coming along to the coaching and taster days and get them into membership and get them into the regular fishing ha habit that hopefully will last a lifetime. Yeah, that, that is quite difficult. I mean, I don't do it from the club angle. I do it from the Gelkton fishing angle. And, and, and participation is, is quite a small part of, of our um, raison d'etre, but it is definitely there. And, and, and as you say, it's finding the next, next step because not all clubs make fishing 
as easy for young people as others. And, and I know at Reading, you've developed those special ponds where everybody can have a go, but they're specifically suited, especially suited to youngsters. Got We've got places like Marsh Farm. There, there's all kinds of, 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 of ways it can be done because you mentioned coaches there and we do miss the coach because that was more people would be on the coach than would ever be at a meeting. And, and you got such great input on the way there and on the way back, um, despite the smoke. And, and that's, there's no such thing as angling coach, sharabangs, angling driving coaches these days. It's, it's people with, the, with um, a, a coach licence now that, uh, that teach youngsters. But yeah, it's, it's, that's changed a lot. And there's still, it, it's very difficult unless clubs have got a specific type of water to try and involve Young people, with you know, with health and safety, not health and safety, um, all, all the safeguarding, the, the CPSU stuff, yeah, child protection and safeguarding is 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 very, very, very important, and we've seen in other sports major problems, and uh, you know, hopefully, angling can avoid them. So, yeah, but anyway, that's that's political, I suppose, and and um, you're a bit of a political animal, but we'll get to that in a minute because from there, you, you already mentioned Reading, you. Travelled a few miles upstream, and, and then I guess you of the Thames, and uh, you must have sometime fell in love with a Kennet. Well, what happened was, uh, if if Eddie Batley, the old the old guy who sadly passed on, uh, uh, kind of turned me into an angler through through his Saturday morning sessions and and and, and fishing all weathers. The guy I learned most from was a, a butcher lived in Fulham, a fellow called Steve Clawson, very good angler. And Steve took me under his wing. He was one of the senior members. And uh, when I was a bit older, he would pick me and my mate up, Ian, uh, uh, on his way out from West London, his old A35. And we would chug up what was the bit of the M4 to Maidenhead and then ironically drive through the middle of Reading and he would take us to the Kennet. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I, I think I was 16 and, you know, I'd been used to fishing fairly sluggish waters like, like, like the Thames, a lot of laying on, of course, uh, and, and, and the rest of it in those days. Uh, and I saw this, this crystal clear chalk stream with these great big fronds of ranunculus. I don't think I'd seen ranunculus before. Um, there was some kind of weed uh, on, on the cone at Raysbury, but I don't think there were beds of ranunculus in those days, certainly. Anyway, uh, I, I remember thinking, oh, this is, this is, this is, this is a bit different. Uh, and uh, I set up by this, this, this swim which, where the river narrowed, where a sort of old railway bridge had been knocked down. And uh, I thought, well, you know, there'll be in that far bank run, there's a sort of gap between the weeds. So I, I, I was fed Hempton Caster. And you'll remember these floats. They were completely useless, but they were popular at the time. They were the Pegley Davis Fluted Avon. Uh, yeah, they were supposed to hold against the far bank. No, absolute rubbish. But uh, anyway, I was able to get this float to go down reasonably well. And I started catching quality roach. I had several roach up to about a pound. I thought, this is fantastic. And it, it, it swim went a bit quiet. And I climbed up on top of the old bridge stanchions and stared into the water. And I suddenly saw these. I'd caught barbel. I'd caught them from the Thames at Belweir and Penton Hook and the rest of it. But, you know, I'd, I'd, never, uh, I, I, I'd never, never from a river like the Kennet. And I saw these pearl fins underneath the, the I couldn't see the, the outline of the fish, but I could just see these fins. And after a while, your eyes get accustomed. I could see this barb about five or six pounds drifting in and out of the weed. Oh, my God, I've got to catch that. So you know, out came the sort of hideous solid glass ledger rod thing that we had. Again, Pegley Davis, as I recall, probably about 10 foot. Uh, um, 
I think my first one had a, had a bamboo butt. But anyway, I think this was an upgrade. I think this was yellow solid fiberglass all the way through. So I, I lobbed the old RC bomb out and a cube of lunch of meat, about the size of an ox, oxo cube, whacked it out uh, in the run between the weeds. And of course, then something I was never used to happened. Of course, the rod tip starts seesawing backwards and forwards as the as, as the fronds of ranunculus are banging back. So I'm not used to any of this, and I, I just didn't know what to do. And in the end, I just thought, well, I'm going to sit back away from the rod and wait for it to cart over. Uh, and that was reasonably intelligent. After about half an hour, the rod duly carted over. So in addition to a bag of pristine roach, I caught this five-and-a-half-pound Kennet barbel, which I'd seen an hour or so earlier. And I thought, this is fishing like I've never had before. Um, and uh, I fell in love, to be perfectly honest. And from that day onwards, uh, it took me 10 years, but I vowed that the first house I would buy would be on the banks of the Kennet. And so consequently, after uh, dropping out of university and, and working at the airport and all the rest of it, I saved up a few bob. Uh, and me and my mate bought a, a house in Elga Road on the old jam factory stretch of the of the Kennet, and I used to be able to catch barbel from the bottom of my garden. In fact, I remember Mel Russ came along and did a feature on the the, the match angler who had barbel in the bottom of his garden. They did a three-page spread in Angler's Mail, and uh, it was terribly sexist because my girlfriend at the time, Terry, uh, was featured in the uh, in, in in the article saying, and, and, and Terry, his his long-suffering girlfriend. Uh, came down with two mugs of steaming tea and a tasty sausage sandwich. Uh, and uh, so that was her claim to fame. Yeah. And she still teases me about it to this day, not that we're together. Now, that, that was uh, that was a wonderful stretch of the Kennet, the old jam factory. It was Huntley and Palmer's, wasn't it? It was just upstream. Was that the... That was no, the... Huntley, and Palmer's, Huntley and Palmer's was downstream, oh, uh, down, going down towards Blakesock and, and Kennet Mouth. But the jam factory stretch was the first bit of the Redmond District water. Uh, and in those days, Keith, I mean, God, how it, how it's changed. Uh, but you didn't catch very many double-figure barbels from the Kennet. But if you were going to catch a 10-pounder, you'd either catch them in Reading or you catch them just downstream in Newbury. In the middle of the river was alive with fish. But for years, and I must have caught thousands of barbels. I mean, twice I've had 30 in a day on the stick float and centipede. Uh, but they're never, they were never more than six or seven pounds. And my personal best barbel from the Kennet over all those years uh, until, funnily enough, the river started to decline with crayfish and canal opening and the rest of it. My personal best barbel was £8.14. I couldn't get bigger than that. I couldn't catch a nine-pounder. And yet, you know, wind on 10 years when the, the fish stopped recruiting, the fish, there were less fish, but they got bigger and bigger. Uh, you know, there were guys that would go out and catch four or five barbel in the evening. They wouldn't get one under nine pounds. And, and of course, everyone thought that was wonderful, but it's not. It's, uh, it, as Pete Redding wisely said, when your river starts going like that, you're fishing an OAP's home, home and it hasn't got long. Now, I remember Dick Walker actually writing in Angling Times that the Kennet was the best river in the country to catch barbel from, but the worst river to catch a 10-pounder from because there were loads and loads of them, but none of them grew big. And uh, that, as you say, changed and it changed for, for very many reasons. And people think, if, if you think, well, why aren't I getting 30 10-pounders? It's not because there isn't time to land them. It's because they're not there. Um, and, and I remember the jam factory stretch because I used to drive up there, get driven up there from London and you could stand on the, the towpath because it's obviously a canalised bit through there next to the road bridge on the 16th of June. 
and pretend to throw something into the river and the roach would boil because they would do it for hemp and they got used to the hands. It was almost waving them, I'm here. And up they'd come and have a look and, and you could get them boiled. Difficult to catch, but you could get them boiling on the top, see these beautiful red fins coming from nowhere to about six inches under the surface and swimming in and out of the hemp, maybe taking it, maybe not, was, uh, was a, a fantastic sight. And... Um, Unfortunately, the water isn't that clear anymore for for whatever reason, and, and there isn't anywhere near that amount of flow either, which is uh, which is which is something else that we're suffering even more from at the moment with the current drought. But that's something else. But from, from there, um, and 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 living in Kennet, you're living in Reading. You obviously got a good taste for the town um, because you finished up representing Reading West at least in in the Houses of Parliament. How did that come about? Well, again, that was a, a bit of an accident, really. I mean, I certainly wasn't one of these people that had a career plan written on the back of an envelope. I mean, I actually think people like that should be shot. They're, they're deeply dangerous. Uh, you know, things just kind of happened to me. Uh, and so I rocked up, rocked up to Reading. I was, I was young. I was single. I was mad about fishing and obviously got to know the, the waters much better, living locally. Caught some lovely fish uh, and... Um, Got involved with the local community association, organised a bit of a sort of holiday fishing club. Um, and then the local council decided to ban fishing on the Reading Prom, which is the main stretch of the Thames in Reading. We're, we're very blessed in Reading. We've got the Loddon, we've got the Kennet, and we've got, we've got the Thames all within a stone's throw. Anyway, they banned it over the lead shot controversy back in the 80s. So swans were allegedly eating lead shot. So I went along. Uh, uh, the Reading Prom. In fact, exactly where you, I took you fishing many years ago uh, when we did a piece for Tight Lines. And I got my plummet out. And, you know, as you know, it's 11, 12 foot deep through there. And yeah. I wrote a letter to the local paper saying, this is ridiculous. If these swans are eating lead shot from the bottom of the River Thames on the prom, they must be ostriches. They can't, you know, no swans got an 11 foot neck. Anyway, that's always a mistake, isn't it? Because you get spotted and, you know, one thing led to another, and I ended up going on the local council, got elected to council in 1984. Uh, I did two things. I uh, very quickly became chairman of the Leisure Committee. I uh, overth- overthrew the ban on angling on Reading Prom, ticked that box. Then I brought the Rock Festival back to Reading because that had been uh, abandoned by the, uh, won't get political, but the forces of darkness. Uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, so I spent a very, very happy 12 years uh, on Reading Borough Council, we did quite a lot of good stuff for angling. We employed angling development officers to uh, organise angling for kids in the summer holidays. We opened up free fishing on the, on the river. Uh, we we set up an angling parking scheme, uh, which I think you came down to help me promote, where for, I think it was five quid a year, probably two quid back in those days. You could get a permit as long as you showed your rod licence, and then you had free access to council car parks near the river. Because uh, an awful lot of urban fishing, as you know, is constrained by I- increasing car parking charges and, and, and fixed limits. You know, you can only park for two hours. That's not a lot good if you're going fishing for the day. So I did a lot of work on, on, on that. And then come 1987, 1997, you know, from, from the red, red, red corner, obviously things were going well. And uh, it just seemed an opportunity to, to, to put my hat in the ring and run for Parliament. So uh, I found myself in Parliament in 1997 and spent 13 happy years uh, representing Reading West. And uh, I, bec- I was appointed the parliamentary spokesman for fishing uh, because they wanted some a backbencher to add a, a bit of a knowledge of the sport, to be a sort of interface between government departments and the, uh, uh, and, and the sport. Uh, set up the all-party 
parliamentary angling group uh, with my conservative mate, Charlie Walker, who's resigning from Parliament the next election. He's had enough and he's taken over as chair of the, of the Angling Trust. So it's, it's been a, uh, you know, politics has been important in my life, but fishing has been the golden thread that's run through everything. I remember the um, you, you mentioned lead shot and Reading Prom when I think it was Safeway came out with the first uh, lead substitute. Uh, we had a match on Reading Prom. It was an invitation match. I, rem- I remember well, um, and it was it was actually fished on the prom itself. And you were probably responsible for that. That would have been, I guess, 1987, 1988, probably 1988. And um, I won the section by catching little perch between the bank and the cabbages. You know, you've got that, the, the underwater <laughs> yeah, yeah. cabbage weed. And it was Denise Hudgel that showed me how to do it. She caught a perch in the edge. I actually caught that because I'm fishing for roach. Obviously, can't get a bite using this this stuff that was like, I don't know, it was like an empty pencil, but it was made of something heavier uh, as a weight. And it, it, it wasn't very good. And um, But I could catch these perch with just a little tiny bit of putty on the line. And uh, I saw them chase, the, they were chasing the fry, you know, like they do sometime in the margins. So on went a bit of worm and out came a perch. And I think I'd about, I might have had two pound or something. And, and Denise wasn't pleased because I just pipped her for the section. Well, like those perch have got a bit bigger. Uh, uh, yeah. they're, they're coming out at serious sizes. Uh, a friend of ours, a Ren District member, has just had a four-six uh, oh. in the in the middle of the town. There's a lumpy great perch now on the Thames. And as you know, I specialise for them now. I mean, I, I have to say the Thames is. I, I mean, the Thames has improved its fishery. No, absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, and although I, it was the Kennet that drew me to Reading. Uh, the river I'm most in love with these days. If anyone had to say, Martin, what's your favourite river? I, I'm afraid it is the Thames. I spend a lot of time on, on, on the river. I, I adore it. I think it's probably fair to say, Keith, that within 10 miles upstream or downstream of Reading, there are probably three British record fish swimming in that river as we speak now. There will be a record chub. I have no doubt about it. I know of a 9-2 that came out a couple of winters ago. There will be a record perch, I am sure. Uh, that's only got to get over 6-5, six, six, and big fives get called every year, and a few, the odd six, you don't hear much about them. And some of those Thames barbel are stupid weights. I mean, every year there's a, a 20-pounder come out. I'm not sure what the record barbel is, but was it 21 and a half? Uh, it really like, isn't yeah. beyond the bounds of possibility that, that, that the middle the middle Thames could produce three British records in the next two or three years. We're seeing that with quite a few rivers as well, and and in the, we've got you know I mean the improvement in sport, and in these times when we've got a distinct lack of flow, a distinct amount of sewage being regularly pumped into many of our rivers, the only reason I can think of we've got more predators than there used to be. We've got cormorants that weren't there in 1982. We've got otters that weren't there through that time. We've got mink. Uh, there's more herons. There's more all more kingfishers, probably. All manu- and terns, which we never used to have in terns. One fishery manager assures me they're responsible for eating more fish than any amount of cormorants you could ever get um, because they little tiny fry. Um, do you think that the, the rivers have improved because we've not been fishing them as much. I mean, if, if, if lots of people were saying that, that coarse fish in particular thrive on neglect. Do you think that that could be a case? I mean, I don't know. I'm not a fishery scientist. I think it would be very difficult, even if you go back to the days when there were regular matches on the Middle Thames and, and you know, 80, 90 peg, peg matches. I, I, 
I think it would be very difficult on a river that size for ang- angry pressure to be a, a huge impact. I think on smaller rivers, possibly. Um, but, you know, even if I look at the stretches of the Thames now that are fished headier than others, uh, Charles Beale near Reading would be a classic example, uh, Upper Pangbourne. Uh, but they, the angry pressure doesn't seem to be making a huge amount of difference. Mm-hmm. No, I just think we've seen, we've seen changes. Uh, the, the sewage overflows that we get in the rivers are normally now as a result of uh, the combined storm overflows you know, they're releasing sewage at a time when there's uh, a bit of extra rain because they haven't upgraded their sewage treatment works to cope with the amount of extra houses. But the actual quality of the effluent, and there's a point I want to come on to about the, this government deregulation agenda that is worrying the hell out of us. And you would have seen the press release we put out today after our performances at the local party comp- uh, the political party conferences. The thing that's worrying me now is that we have seen the quality of sewage effluent get better and better and better over over the last 30-odd years. Most of that has been driven by a piece of legislation from the European Union called the Urban Wastewater Directive. If we take an example, Keith, of a river you and I know well, which is a little black water, which you remember when you lived down in Surrey, that was biologically dead. And because Mm. of the quality of effluent in that river, uh, there was... Hardly any fish. Uh, in Camberley. The, the Camberley yeah. sewage works polluted it all the time. It was the bottom of my garden. It was awful. Now, yeah. I would say uh, it's one of the best small stream uh, rivers in the south of England. You know, you regularly uh, can catch, yeah, yeah, particularly when there's a, 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 a bit of colour in the river, you know, tiny little river, uh, barely 20 foot wide, double figures of roach from 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 a swim in two or three hours, and you can move and do the same from another spot. It was a fantastic little fishery, um, and and that's as a result of the 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 quality of sewage discharge having to make certain uh, uh, hit certain levels. My worry with the announcements that we've seen recently is that uh, they're talking about a bonfire of regulations at DEFRA. Now, I'm afraid our rivers are under huge pressure, as it is. Pressure from agriculture, pressure from sewage spills, uh, pressure from diffuse pollution and the rest of it. Lower flows, more water being taken out of the environment to feed a, a growing population and more and more house building. They need all the protection they can get. And I am very, very worried that this agenda to make it uh, easier to uh, to build on the green belt, uh, get, getting rid of tape, red tape, as they say. Well, I'm afraid some of that red tape is what has seen our rivers improve. And I would hate to see us go back to those bad old days. Uh, I, I really would. So, you know, I'm working very hard with all the wildlife groups, you know, the RSPB, uh, the, the, the National Trust, uh, the Wildlife Trust, uh, obviously the angling organisations, and we are encouraging people to contact their members of parliament and, uh, and, and just say, you know, we value nature, we, we value the environment. And, and the point I was trying to make to ministers when I went up to the Conservative Party conference, said, you want growth? I said, you know, we can deliver you growth with the recreational fishing industry. I mean, there's two million odd anglers. It's worth about four billion to the local economy. It delivers 40,000 jobs. Our sport is absolutely dependent on healthy seas and healthy rivers and healthy watercourses. By protecting the environment, our sport thrives. And if our sport thrives, it delivers economic benefit. And that applies right the way across the piece. So, you know, going for growth, that's fine. I think governments are perfectly entitled to go for growth, but you don't have to do it at the expense of nature. It's not only fiscal either that the benefits that angling brings. I mean, we're seeing, I believe you can be prescribed fishing now by a doctor 
for, for mental health and well-being. It, it, and it's certainly good for that, even if I have been guilty of snapping the odd rod across my knee and jumping up and down on it when it's misbehaved and lost me a fish. Um, it, it's still something that for, for many, many people is their only opportunity to get away from everything and get outside. I mean, I can walk 300 yards from my front door where I'm now and I can be on the river. Now, the river isn't quite like it used to be because it's now a main road for cyclists. It's a main road for joggers. There are thousands of people walking along it now that weren't there pre-COVID. And, and it's become more of a thoroughfare, but it's still a sanctuary. It's still quiet. I can still look at the birds. I can still look at the animals. I can still, you know, watch the hobby fly. We've still got two hobbies flying about down here a bit late, but they're, they're still about. And, and, and all manner of creatures I can see down there. And it's just not a road, even though one side of it, one side might be, the other side's the wet bit. And, and it is just a complete shut off from society. I can watch the planes coming into Heathrow on the other bank. And, and it's, but it's still a river and it's still peace and it's still sanctuary. And, and there are now groups of people getting together to take people that have got particular, particular problems um, to the water side. And, and they're seeing a massive benefit. We, with Galks on Fishing and, and our work with some of the schools we do, we deal with a lot of pupils with various levels uh, on the spectrum of autism, right? You know, people that years ago would have been called naughty kids and now they realise there's actually something wrong with them. And, and But we see a transformation. I, I didn't realise this. I, I was there yesterday. We had a group uh, from, a, from a, um, a pupil referral unit yesterday. And one of the lads was there um, and he's, he's been a bit of a problem in the past, the past few months, but he was catching a few little perch, Esty and Roach, and he was, he was calm, he was sitting there peaceful. And, and I mentioned it to, to Sarah Collins, our CEO. She said, oh, yeah, that's Anthony. Uh, he was the one that we used to have there on a one-to-one -one basis. He had to come with three minders. He was so difficult to manage. He had Bummy. to come with three minders. And I didn't recognise him because he's doubled in height from when I first saw him. He's now taller than me. He's built like a drain rod, you know, there's more fat on a butcher's pencil. But... He sat there yesterday and he, he, another one of the pupils was trying to disrupt him. And, he, and, and every time he went to get up, I said, Anthony, look, you've just caught another perch. Sit down and get a bigger one. And he caught, I don't know how many fish he caught yesterday, in a couple of hours, 30, I suppose, just fishing in the edge with a little whip. But he was happy. He was calm. He went back to the classroom. He told the teachers, and, and we have a teacher with us all the time, but he told them how much he'd enjoyed it. And the, the two teachers that weren't with him, that were with the rest of the group. And He's a changed person. We, we have various people there on work experience as well that have been problems in the past. And, and fishing has done that. It's nothing we've done, nothing gets on fishing's done, apart from put a whip in their hand and a, and a tub of maggots beside them. That's all we've done. And the environment and, and the, the sanctuary, I suppose, has done the rest. Well, I could tell you similar stories from, from the, the work we do at Reading and the work that many other clubs do up, up and down the country. I think a lot of it is getting people, and not just kids, but getting people to relax. And I could, I, I'm thinking of two kids now uh, uh, that have come to the Reading District Farm Flint Complex, and they were absolute problems. I mean, they were people refer, referral uh, clients and, and the rest of it. Couldn't sit still for two minutes in class. Those kids are fishing for five hours now. 
Uh, and it's almost like a, it's almost like a, I don't want to sound like the old hippie I am, but it, it's almost like a Zen thing, you know, that you get absorbed in that in that kind of watery environment, and everything else, all the other troubles disappear. So I, I think it's fabulous that that charities like Tackney Mines and and others are you know, using uh, the, the the benefits of fishing for, for, for therapeutic reasons. And, and of course, when we, we did all that work to, to, to keep Britain fishing, out, uh, to keep us fishing uh, during the lockdown, one of the strong cases we made to ministers at the time, and then you very kindly endorsed the, the, the plans that Jamie and I put together, um, we we were saying, look, there are multiple benefits here. You've got a population that's under martial law effectively uh we were in our home apart from our hours covid walk by allowing people to get out in the countryside you know you're mitigating some of the real serious isolation and psychological problems that lockdown was causing uh, for people wasn't a big deal for me i mean i've got my garden and, and the rest of it but if you're stuck on the 14th floor of a tower block uh, and all you can do is go out for a walk once a, once a week and, and uh, once a day and have a cup of coffee. Uh, you know, the, the, the freedom that the, the being able to fish gave those people was, was tremendous. And, yeah, we very much, uh, we very much highlighted uh, the, the, the mental health benefits and, 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 and the social benefits of allowing people to fish. I'm delighted to say the government, to their credit, credit listened. I never quite understood, Keith, why we managed to get angling allowed and you couldn't play golf. Uh, you could make very similar arguments, but, you know, I don't play golf, uh, uh, and so it wasn't my job. Absolutely. Well, I think that might have been just the benefit of, of, of people trying and working hard to get fishing allowed, um, uh, where maybe the other sports didn't come at it from the same angle. Maybe maybe, maybe people see people like Rory, see golfers like Rory McIlroy with, with several million pounds in prize money and think that everybody's doing golf for that. You know, whereas, you know, we know in fishing, there's 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 a couple of big money events, but nobody's very rarely chance of becoming a millionaire out of what they earn from fishing in this country. No, no absolutely no chance. I, and, and long might stay that way. Um, I, well, I think you and I have had conversations about this, but I mean, we we knew perfectly well that when the, when the government introduced that lockdown back in March, uh, um, 2020, it was not going to last for, it, you know, it had to come to an end. There had to be an end strategy. So after we got over the shock of it for a, a couple of weeks when we weren't, couldn't go fishing, couldn't do anything, we just sat down and we said, well, hang on, we've got to make it easy for them to say yes. So we've got to come up with a plan that is COVID compliant, that shows that angling would not add to the infection rate and that we can deliver our sport in a safe way. Now, Okay, that meant matches were off the agenda initially. Um, it, it, it meant a whole range of, uh, of other things. But we brought in a set of guidelines, which we were happy to publish uh, and happy to encourage people to follow. Uh, and we put that alongside our case to government for uh, uh, angling to be allowed. And the interesting thing is, talking to Jamie Cook, the Angling Trust CEO, he's on this kind of Sports England forum, and all the other sports are waiting to be told what to do by, by, by the government rather than making it easy for the government to say yes. And that's where they went, went wrong, Case. I mean, you know, do you honestly think that, you know, you're faced with this global pandemic, we have NHS creaking at the seams, people dying, businesses going bust, that the government ministers had the chance to worry about lacrosse and hockey. And they really didn't. You know, so we had, we had to make the case. And, and that was the difference. The Angry Trust uh, and with support with people like yourself and others were absolutely proactive. And we made it easy 
for the government to say, yes, we can do this, we can let this happen. And the evidence is it, it, it will be beneficial and it won't add to the infection rates. Uh, and so that's that's uh, that was probably one of the, the, the biggest campaigns we've ever thought of the Anglican Trust. took a huge amount of work. Luckily, we had very, very good political uh, um, contacts. I mean, Charlie Walker was fantastic. We have a number of cabinet ministers, personal mobile numbers. We knew the special cabinet meeting that was being held every three weeks to look at the COVID restrictions. So when we did publish our proposals, we were able to lobby for it behind the scenes uh, and reassure uh, people. And we got an awful lot of support and, uh, you know, fair play, fair play to government ministers and fair play to everybody that got behind us. And I have to say the Anglican community were pretty good. I and mean, we had a few idiots out there, but, but by and large, people followed the rules. They followed the guidelines. Uh, I don't think there's a single case. I, I may be wrong. But I don't think there was a single case of an angler being prosecuted for breach of COVID regulations. Uh, and, you know, given that some of the rum characters we got in our sport, that was, that, was, that was an achievement, really. We certainly didn't do ourselves as a sport any harm in the way that we conducted ourselves throughout the pandemic. And I think that's great. And, of course, we saw a massive explosion in numbers of people going fishing. And, and which has continued to an extent. I mean, you're obviously never going to keep them all because some of them just did it for the time and don't have time now. They're back at work. But we certainly saw an increase in angling numbers that has continued, which is which is is very, very good because it's a generational thing. Hopefully that generation passes on to the next generation. And, and so it goes. It, it's interesting. You, you mentioned about the matches during the COVID restrictions because some um, big matches have still maintained the new style of draw that they created for, for, for competitions, which people don't know, you, you draw a position to fish from for the five hour, usual five hours of a competition. And, and, and some of the people, the match organisers, have retained the isolated draw system they used for COVID because it, they've, they've found it actually exciting, like a bash, battleship's board or whatever, and you point to a number and they turn it over and there it is rather than all queuing up and dipping into a sweaty old bag. It's um, it, it, it's it's been, been actually beneficial for some things. But enough about politics for a minute. We might come back to it later. Probably not, though. Um, you mentioned at the moment you're very, very keen on, on catching your, your perch from the Thames and other places, Um You've been through a roach phase um, that I, I'm, I'm still fairly confident is not far behind perch. Um, but but what is your own fishing at the moment? What are you about? I'm a real seasonal angler. In fact, I'm going to update my blog in the next few days uh, as long as work doesn't get in the way and sort of do a look back at the summer, really. Um, but, yeah, I like to let, – let's start with spring. Spring's always a good time to start. I, I have a break from fishing. You know, I stop on March 14th. I don't really, I try not to think about it for a month. I sort the vegetable garden out and uh, and the rest of it. But when those nighttime temperatures start to get up, Keith, uh, and I'm really looking sort of, you know, towards the end of April, I'm looking at tench and I'm starting to mooch around the gravel pits. And as you know, we've got some fantastic uh, big, big tench uh, waters in, in, in both in Oxford and in the, uh, the Thames Valley and the Kelly Valley. Um, and I start getting the tench rods ready. I always start too early. I always start, I, I sometimes try and catch uh, on my birthday on April 19th. You know, I've learned, I've learned the hard way. You should really wait until the nighttime temperatures. I'm not talking about small lakes where there's lots of fish and they're easy to catch. I'm talking about the big gravel pits where you've got the big double figure tench. If you want to be in with a chance of getting uh, getting tension, you don't want to fish all night, which I certainly don't want to do these days. 
Um, you've got to wait till you've had probably two, if not three nights where the nighttime temperature doesn't drop below 10 degrees. Once it gets like that, then the tents start getting on the munch. Uh, and then, yeah, I don't really fish for much else uh, during May uh, and June. Um, tents have been a, a the foot, they were the first fish I had to put a landing net under from a little uh, little little pond down the Staines Lane uh, between between Staines and Laylam. Uh, I adore them. It took me a long, long time to catch the first double figure of tench. It was 2019, I caught one at £10.13, and then two weeks later, I caught one at £11.2. It's always the way they come in buses. So tench in the spring. Um, I do like chasing the mullet. I find mullet an incredibly uh, difficult and challenging species. I've got into spinning, ragworm spinning for them uh, in the last few years, catching thin lip mullets. I've had some blinding days down at Christchurch Harbour. I, I had 13 one day, up to four pound, and a four pound thin lip is a big fish. It is a big uh, fish. Sadly, the thick lips are much thinner on the ground. Unfortunately, the commercial sector like to run a net round. Uh, shoals of mullet and sell them for cat food which is a terrible waste of a beautiful sporting fish so I do a bit of mullet fishing uh, 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 um, and then you know come come July I like to get my barbel fixed I mean sadly it's difficult to do that on the Kennet these days I I, I tend to travel to the Y I've been fishing the Trent a little bit the, the last couple of years and I've had some well, I had 13 the other day off the Trent. I had 13, and the best one was 11, 11, 11. So it was a blinding goat fishing. Unbelievable. So, I mean, the Trent is an incredible fishery. And um, so I really enjoy that. Um, come come the summer months, I like to catch the big perch. I tend to target the perch on either lures or, or little live baits. Uh, I've got a little boat that I, I use and, and, and posture around the uh, Thames Weirpools and various other stretches uh, up and down this neck of the woods. Come the winter, I'll probably target the the, uh, the perch more on lobworms, both on the canal and, and on the river. And, of course, I absolutely adore chasing big chub. Uh, for some reason, I don't know why, Keith, and back in the day, we used to be able to catch lots of chub from the Thames during the summer or maggot feed and the rest of it. Uh, nowadays, the chub don't really seem to show uh, until the first frost, and then it's much more kind of bread and cheese paste and the rest of it. I love doing that as well. I mean, I've been very, very fortunate. I've had... And then, of course, sorry, in between all of that, the, there is the roach. But as you know, big roach fishing is, is rare these days. You tend to, you know, where they do live, you need to pick the right conditions, the right water, you know, a bit of colour in the water, milder conditions. I'll be very lucky, Keith. I've had between 50 and 60 roach over two pounds from nine different rivers. The one that most surprised me was a two-pounder I caught from the Thames at Chiswick when, when I did that uh, we did that a test for the Typhus match we, we looked at that stretch on, on your advice near the ship in at Chiswick and uh, I was busy catching sort of modest bream and all of a sudden a pound and three quarter roach arrived and then a one pound fourteen hybrid arrived and then next thing I know it was a two two roach um, so I'd never set out to catch a two pounder from the Thames but you know I managed it managed it so that was lucky so yeah big roach love them never had a three pounder even though I fished the Avon in, the, in its glory days my best is a very honest two pound two fourteen eight actually from the Dorset Star um, and then of course there's a the big chub and uh, whilst I love going down Hampshire Avon and trotting maggots from chub and, and I've had some big bags of fish and several over six pound in a, in a bag of a dozen or so fish the real big girls tend to come from the Thames sometimes to Lodden and at the moment my PB is 7.8 uh, which is uh, 
My PB by probably uh, best part of 14 ounces. I think it's going to be a while before I get one bigger than seven, eight. If I'm going to get a big one, bigger one than that, it'll be it'll be from the tens, uh, no doubt about it. So, yeah, I just love all the seasons. I love the sheer variety of fishing we've got in this country. And I haven't even mentioned going bass fishing or grading fishing. I love that too. Yeah, I'm a lucky boy. I love it all. And I live in a really nice part of the country where I've got some fantastic fishing all within an hour, hour and a half drive from a house. Some of it, 10 minutes drive from a house. Uh, I can't see me moving anywhere, frankly, mate. I don't blame you. <laughs> I, I think you just mentioned Chubb there in the winter, and I'm, I'm going back. I go back a little bit further than you. And I remember in, so when I first started the te- fishing the Thames with a club, would have been the, the early 1960s. And you only ever caught Chubb in the winter then. I know, I know we use very different tactics then. Most of it was a bait dropper laying on under the rod top. But my first club, Tamasis, our secretary at the time, Brian Gent, used to keep a record of all the fish we caught right through the year because it was all size limits. And, and you wouldn't believe it. We rarely got that. And there would be at least eight of us, sometimes up to 12 of us, fishing every single Sunday on the Thames, fishing to size limits, obviously, because we had to in those days. And we would not always have a thousand goers between us by Christmas. Really? Yeah. And, and, and chub were really scarce. But come the winter, I suppose, when you got that green water, you know, that I, I still love for chub fishing, you'd go out and, and if you were only going to get one bite, the chances are it was a chub. And then a bit later on, I think there was a real boom in the the chub population took a massive increase in the very hot summers of 75, not so much, 76, 77. And then in the 80s, the the, the river was all chub. I mean, you'd you'd go to Medley throughout the year and and you'd you'd have to catch chub to win. And I didn't mind doing that. I was was quite lucky. I don't mind throwing in bait and chub don't mind eating it. Absolutely. I had a bit of a decent run there, but we even started catching them down here. And now, remarkably, I used to fish the Thames, the tidal Thames, semi-tidal Thames here in the winter, and all you'd catch was dace. You wouldn't catch anything else at all, except unless you caught nothing. And if you didn't catch any dace, you might catch a trout and you might catch a chub. So, so And that was, that was also a winter thing. But what's incredible now, and we've seen it on Tidefest, is that Chubb are now in the tidal Thames, the fully tidal Thames, where they never were, never, ever saw one 20 years ago, never saw one. And they're, they're now probably the most prolific species, numerically, of course, fish, not bleak, not dace, which is unbelievable. It now seems to be Chubb. It's funny. I mean, the, the longer you fish, you sort of see these, you see these things go in cycles. And, you know, you see species occupy different niches uh, in, 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 in the fishery. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example of the decline of chub, and that's on the Kennet. Uh, so, you know, the Kennet has, was, as we said, as close to fishing heaven in the 70s and 80s as, it, as you could ever get, you could ever imagine. Um, and it, it'll never be like that again. I'm sure it won't. Um, the canal opened in 1990 and the silt started coming down the river. And it got more and more and more and more boats. Uh, and then the crayfish became an absolute plague proportions. Now, between them, the canal and the crayfish are moving tons and ton- hundreds of tons of silt are coming down that river, which was once a crystal clear chalk stream to the extent that I, I sight fish from the first barbel, as I, as I said earlier. 
What that does, that changes the nature of the river. So immediately it becomes more cloudy, more turbid. The ranunculus stops growing. The ranunculus is very important for the invertebrates and, 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 and the rest. But what it also does is it coats the gravel and it turns it into concrete. And if the gravel spawning fish like chub and ace and barbel can't lay their eggs because they can't find a suitable substrate of gravel, then you've got a problem. You haven't got proper spots. You're not getting recruitment. Add to that where you get the few areas where the fish, the gravel spawners are able to lay eggs. You, they're immediately pounced upon by a plague of crayfish and they're eating them literally as they're coming out of the vents of the fish. Then you've got a real, real problem. Um, but what's happened on the middle Kennet and the lower Kennet is nature abhors a vacuum. And so something else has come in. Now what's happening, I can take you to stretches of the Kennet where in the past you'd catch, I don't know, five, six, seven pounds of silverfish, dace, roach, whatever, a couple of grading, who knows, and you'd get three or four big chub. And that'd be a good day. You know, get, you know, I don't know, 12 pound of chub and eight pound of silverfish, 20 pound of fish. That's a nice day's trotting, isn't it? Yeah. Now, you probably still catch some of those silverfish, but those three or four big fish you'll catch will all be trout. Really? Now, why? Now, why? I'll tell you why. Because trout are not impacted in the same way as uh, coarse fish because they are spawning in the winter months in December when the crayfish are not active. Yeah. So we have now got a pretty healthy population of wild brown trout. They may have been stockfish that came down, but we've got an awful lot of trout in the river that we never used to see in the Middle Ages. Never used to see trout in the Middle Ages. Um, and they've almost replaced chub. And I think that's as a result of the impact of both crayfish and the concretion of the, of the, uh, of the spawning gravels. Uh, so it's really interesting. You know, nature will often... Find a uh, find a way to deliver you a different profile of fish populations. Nothing stays the same. You, th you think about um, in the sea. You think around our, especially our east coast and south coast, where used to be cod. There are now thornback rays in absolute profusion. You know, I mean, it's not that long ago that John Popperwell was telling me he was trying to catch a thornback ray every month of the year from the shore. And now it, it, you can do it as a matter of course. You turn up and if you catch a big fish, it's likely to be a thornback. Whereas 30, 40, 50 years ago, 60, 70 years ago, it would only have been a cod or a huge bass at this time of the year. You used to get the odd big bass where people angles were fishing for, for cod with double squid or huge mounds of, of, of lugworm on a hook. And, that, and that's changed, and, and the rays are everywhere, and the cod are nowhere. Uh, and, oh, look, and at, look at look what's happened with tuna, Keith. I mean, I'm yeah, going, oh, I'm, I, I, that I'm was my next subject. Fishing. Well, I'm going tuna fishing on on, uh, on on Monday. I'm not that bothered about winding in a 400 pound tuna. Uh, you know, I've uh, I've done that stuff out in Australia and, uh, and elsewhere. But I'm going on the boat, uh, and uh, I'm particularly keen because we worked really hard at the Angling Trust to to get that 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 live released science-based fishery in place uh it's been a phenomenal success i, I was explaining at the, at the conservative party conference that you know you want economic growth look at just what that limited tuna fishery that, we, that we've got in operation so far has delivered for the cornish economy i mean it's somewhere north of seven hundred thousand pounds uh that all those thousands of pounds that people are spending going for their big game fixes they don't they don't have to leave the shores of britain now uh and that's changed i mean we we we've they've what i think those bluefin tuna have been back since 
since about 2016. 13, I saw him. 2013, I saw him off the Welsh coast, yeah. But I think in terms of numbers, it's really six or seven years. Oh, yes, definitely. And and it's it's been a phenomenal success. But I mean, they're here for a reason. I don't accept it's necessarily climate change because tuna are not susceptible to uh, susceptible to, I mean, they can live in the Arctic Circle and they can live in the Caribbean, and they do. They regulate their temperature. Yeah, they're like yeah, some of the I mean, sharks. They're one of the few fish that can. Yeah. So they're either following bait fish or yes. probably a combination of both. It's probably increased amounts of bait fish, but also the conservation measures that were brought in that stopped some of the excessive exploitation of bluefin tuna because the Japanese fleets in particular, but also other nations, had hunted them to extinction. Those conservation measures have got tuna back past the critical mass, and, the, and, and they are an apex predator. Apex predators tend to do really well. I mean, the Mediterranean fisheries come back. So lots and lots of things change. And and I, I do get fed up with anglers who sort of, you know, oh, it's all doom and gloom. I mean, look, I live in doom and gloom. You know, I, I'm, I'm the guy that's campaigning against sewage pollution, campaigning against over-abstraction, campaigning against weakening environmental legislation. And, and of course, we've got to... We've We've, we've got to put those those hard yards in. We've got to make sure the, the voice of angling is heard. But for God's sake, there's plenty of good fishing to be enjoyed out there. There's, there, there you know, was it Chris Yates who, who back in the 70s, travelled all the way to Landridnob Wales Lake to catch a 20-pound carp? And now I don't think there's anybody in England that lives more than a mile from a 20-pound carp. You know? Absolutely sure. <laughs> Not that Absolutely I'd ever want to sure. catch one again, but there you go. But you mentioned, you mentioned doom and gloom, and it made me laugh because I've spoken to a couple of people that are absolutely distraught all these tuna because they're eating fish on the wrecks that they should be catching. They're eating the bait that the fish on the wreck should be eating. And and there's no pollock now because no coal fish. There's no this because of these bloody tuna everywhere. And and about 10 years ago, it was, we've got no flounder now. All these bass nursery areas, the bass are eating all the baby flounder. And now all we'll be able to catch is bloody bass before long. So no matter what you do, there'll be people on your case for doing it. But you, you mentioned, a 400 pound tuna you've probably seen um the two fish in the last 10 days i think whereas uh loki um kieran's boat down in in cornwall um hooked up to a fish that they saw and hooked it and i'll tell you the tail and the dorsal fin were half a long way apart and when they got it to the side of the boat they've got a regulation 120 inch tape to measure it and it wasn't big enough well, that's, and, that's that's push, that's that's coming up towards eight hundred to a thousand pounds. No, that twelve hundred pounds was the closest oh, okay. they could get. Um, okay. And and then Andrew Alsop on White Waters out from um, out from Milford Haven had one, I think, three nights ago that he's just been given permission by the wealth authorities to put the video out from. That was one hundred and eleven inches long, um, and it but it was quite lean. So that was estimated at nine hundred pounds. I mean, these are serious, serious fish. And the great thing is they're being caught on serious tackle that gets them both side pretty quick. When you, you'll sometimes see, if you ever watch Wicked Tuna, you'll sometimes see a clock, a fight clock on the side of the boat in three, four, five, six hours. Sometimes these specialist tuna anglers are taken to get a tuna to the boat. Well, some of these huge fish are coming, in, coming up to the side of the boat in 45 minutes. I mean, the, 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 the whitewater one was a bit longer. I think that was about a couple of hours. Um, 
but it was it wasn't hooked on the the current conventional tuna tackle of the of the the spread of lures with the hook in the middle of it. This was taken on a dead bait, dropped over the side, literally over the side of the boat, down to ten meters, and put in a rod holder because they just had an absolutely huge poor beagle shark estimated at three hundred and fifty pounds a male doing exactly the same thing. That took a five or six pound pollock. They didn't have any big pollock left for bait, so Andrew put this manky old mackerel that he'd found out the freezer a big mackerel and lowered that down and the rod bent over and thank you very much 900 pound estimated tuna and andrew's very good at his estimations he's got these um he does a, a, a length times girth times girth times 800 sort of calculation yeah. which is remarkably accurate and uh, yeah yeah he had this one down as over 900 pound this tuna i don't think he could get the girth but they're massive fishing but like 400 pound is a sort of middle of the road aren't they That'll do me. I mean, I'll do oh. now. I, I, I've said to Jamie, because he's taking me down there, Jamie Cook, and I, I, I said, look, mate, I said, you know, there's three of us on the boat. I said, I've caught these things before. You know, take you take the first two runs. Hopefully there won't be a third. I'll enjoy your pleasure. I'll enjoy watching <laughs> you get a hernia. I said, if it does go off a third time, yeah, I'll pick the rod up. I said, and after about 15 minutes, I will have had enough, and you can wind the bloody thing in, you know. Do, do the Roy Marlow. Oh, my elbow, my elbow's gone. Oh, quick, quick, take the rod. Anything Roy doesn't want to catch. When we're on our, our boys' trips in Florida, he, he quickly manages to pass whatever. He's, he's caught me out a few times, and I've had years of experience of it, and many, many captains have, have felt Roy's Goliath grouper or his tiger shark or his bull shark or his hammerhead shark that he wasn't really that interested in fighting after about 10 minutes oh, 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 oh my elbow my elbow so yeah develop an elbow that's 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 the very best thing to do well i've got i've got a trip coming up keith you know, i um because we couldn't go anywhere for three years with lockdown and i, I managed to so in between the various restrictions uh managed to get a reasonably cheap deal on a trip to the maldives uh, uh which is amazing because it's quite an expensive place and uh, me and my wife went out there and uh, I, I got three days of a really good operation called uh, Max Strike. And it, he's a Belgian guy. Um, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was basically casting poppers at the reef from a centre console boat. And uh, the GTs weren't huge. But I was catching GTs up to about £40 and, and yellowfin tuna between sort of 50 and £80. Those were the nice size of the fish. I mean, they give you a yeah. right old workout. But, you know, 10 minutes or so, you've gotten to the bank. Oh, less than that with a GT. You've got them to the boat. They're released safely. They're unharmed. All right, we took the tuna back to eat. Uh, and I, I absolutely loved it. I loved it so much. I'm actually going back. Uh, I'm going back uh, uh, next month. Um, really? Trouble is, you know, the older you get, there, there will come a point. I'm 68. There will come a point where I'm going to think to myself, do I really want to be battling these monsters any, anymore? <laughs> and, and, and here's a funny thing about fishing. Here's a funny thing. As you know, when I stood down from, from, from retire from politics to, as I say, spend more time with my fish. The plan was always for me to come back and work for the Anglican Trust, but I wanted a sabbatical. I'd, I'd been in public life for 26 years. So we went out to Australia. My wife got a job out there. I did a bit of work for the recreational fishing industry, helping them get a bit organised. I've got all sorts of huge fish, marlin and barracuda and, and Spanish mackerel and yellowtail kingfish and the rest of it. Learned all sorts of different fishing techniques, which was fantastic. That's a wonderful thing about fishing. You never stop learning. I came back to this country and the first thing I wanted to do was to go back to my roots. So I got a pint of hemp and tares and I went down the Thames at Goring where you and I fished and I had a bag of roach. I don't suppose the biggest roach I caught was as big as some of the live baits I was using in Australia. And do you know what? It was a wonderful, 
wonderful days fishing. So I know, you know, I can go around the world and go and catch big mass here and 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 and, 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 and you know peacock bass and the rest of it. And I've done that stuff and I love doing it as you have in Florida and, and the rest of it. But my roots are still in running that float down the river, uh, and they always will be, mate. And it's still probably the most skillful. I guess I, I'm. I'm a bit. I don't like setting one style of fishing necessarily up against another. You get enough snobbery from with fly fishing in 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 in, in, in that regard. Um, oh, I think, think stick float anglers are worse than fly anglers. I think we're much more snobbish. <laughs> As anyone, are you always said from about the age of twenty five onwards? Anyone can fish with a stick float. Can fish with anything. <laughs> and it's nonsense, of course, but it is, it well, is a snobbery I, I, we've got. I'll tell, you what, I'll tell you the problem case, uh, and, and you are a good flying girl, I've seen you cast, but one of the problems is if you're brought up with a certain style of fishing, you develop a muscle memory. Yep. Now, I'm pretty good at trotting the far bank of big rivers. You know, I can, I can stand there with a big rod, 15, 16-foot rod up in the air, and I can run that float through pretty well, and I know you can too. But that's a certain type of muscle memory that you develop. The techniques you need for sort of double hauling and some of the stuff you have to do with fly fishing are very different. And they're different parts of the muscles in your arm that you use. And for me to fly fish effectively, I almost have to unlearn some of the stuff that is instinctive. Um, and I, I sometimes wish that when I, if I had my time again, I kind of wish, yeah, delighted I was learnt, learnt as a course fisherman. But I wish in those formative years, I'd also, someone would take me fly fishing, if only for a little bit, so I could kind of learn those techniques and they became as instinctive to me as casting a waggler or, or, or putting a stick float through is, is these days, you know? Yeah, you're right. 1950, I think, 1950, 1992, the first time I picked up a fly rod in any kind of anger at all. And, and then it was only twice a year. I used to go, um, one of my great friends, one of my tackle dealer um, customers when I worked for Dyer was Rick Nunn, tackle up at Bury St. Edmunds. And he used to run two matches a year for his, um, on Rutland for his friends and customers. And I got invited on those. I got stuck in a boat with Graham Barry, who's not someone you want to get stuck in a boat with if you want to have a serious day. And, um, and, and a fly rod was put in my hand. And, and I had, to, I had to, uh, to find out pretty quickly how to do it. And, and I learned, I mean, I'm, I'm not even a reasonable flying rod. I can get a fly out on the water far enough to catch a fish. And, and, and that's about it. And I've learned to double haul a bit. And I learned to roll cast. And I've, I've even had a bit of spay casting at, at salmon fishing. But I'm a long, 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 long way from being an expert, even though some of those styles have helped my stick float fishing. You know, the, the technique of spay casting, if you've got 14 foot of water in front of you and a 13 foot rod and a stick float, being able to spay cast and roll cast has taught me the timing to be yeah. able to get that stick float where I want it, which I could never have done with a conventional casting technique of, an, of a normal float, wanting to whack it behind me or flick it out in front of me. So, yeah, it, it, it all, it all, um, it all coincides. So, so, Where's next? So the Maldives obviously coming up. You got anything else? Anything on your bucket list? That, that you, you, I mean, you must have ticked off virtually every. You caught a tarpon yet? Yeah, I've had tarpon. Oh, um, blimey, you have a tarpon. I only had, only, only had a couple. But permit uh, on fly? Yeah, I can't be bothered with that. No, don't do uh, it. No, it's, it's mad, mate. It's mad. Yeah, yeah, if I want to catch a permit, I'll put a bloody crab on, throw yes. it. The thing. I can eat yes. it. Uh, that's right. not a problem. Um, Roosterfish. Roosterfish oh, is yeah. a big, big one for me. I, it, I, luckily, because I ended up working for the recreational fishing sector 
in Australia, I got to know a lot of the good anglers out there and the angling journalists and the rest of it. And, uh, you know, a few of them have been around the world and they've got some fantastic fishing in Australia, but they would actually travel to the Pacific for a rooster mm. fish. And I wrote on my blog a few years ago, if anyone's listening, it's called Fighting for Fishing. Uh, and it's a, a mixture of kind of angling issues and angling adventures. In fact, Keith, Keith features in it from time to time. Uh, and they said, I wrote a, a, a piece called it's all about the take and it's that why do we keep fishing what is this drug that keeps pulling us back is it the screaming reel is it the hundred pound of fish is it the size of the fish i actually think it's that electric moment when you you make that lightning rod david profumo uh, wrote a book called the lightning thread one of the best angling books ever written uh it's that lightning thread between you the end of your rod your fly your consciousness and this unseen force under the water. It's just that split second. And it can manifest itself in many ways. It can be a three-foot wrench from a from, from a barbel as, a, as that tip goes round. It can be that subtle twitch of the stick float that goes slightly faster down the river when the rope takes your, your single caster and, and doesn't pull the float under. It's just that lightning connection. The thing with the rooster fish is when they come up behind you, they've got, uh, I mean, if people are listening, you know, Google roosterfish, Google the images. They've got this great big uh, uh, dorsal fin that comes up like, the, like the, 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 the crown on the head of a rooster, hence, hence its name. And when it comes up behind your lure, it's not a smash and grab like it is with a lot of predatory fish. It's coming in behind you and you see it. It's like jaw, and in she comes and then she hits you. Uh, and it kind of, kind of prolongs that kind of, that sense of anticipation. So, yeah, it's not just catching a rooster fish. It's not just the fact they look amazing. It's not just the fact that they are an incredible habitat. They fight like hell. They're big. It, it's just that whole thing of that anticipation that you're about to get a strike. And it's, it's I'm told, it's, you know, it's as rock and roll as it gets, rooster fish. So I want to get one of those before I get too, uh, too old. The other thing we're doing, we're going back to India, we're going back to Bhutan. Uh, uh, to chase Marcia. I've been incredibly lucky with Marcia. I think they're the most wonderful fish on the planet. When I went back in the 90s, when a few people were going out with people like John Wilson and Dave Plummer and the rest of it, I did get out there in 98 and I had a 92-pounder from the River Calvary. Those were the big humpback Marcia. Sadly, you can't fish for those anymore and that fishery's finished. But you still got these, the, these, the, the, the sleeker Himalayan Marcia uh, I managed to catch a 27-pounder back in 2015 with Keith Elliott on the Subansiri River in northern India. But we've managed to find a way of getting into Bhutan, which is an amazing kingdom. It's illegal to kill fish there. It's uh, 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 very conservation-minded. The rivers are pristine. I am told by Misty Dillon, who's probably the premier uh, fly angler for Marseille in the world, that the river that we're going on, which hardly anybody ever gets to fish, is the best fly fishing for Marseille he's ever had. I, of I course, won't be fly know. fishing. I should be fishing with lures. So, <laughs> yeah, watch this space. I'm hoping to get myself uh, uh, another golden Marseille from a uh, pristine Himalayan river. We're spending six days whitewater rafting down this, this wilderness uh, with a group of local people. And uh, I'm hoping I'll come back with some nice fishy tales and perhaps a bit of video, case. Okay? So, yeah. there you go. Rooster fish and, and Himalayan Marseille. That, that's that uh, that, that, that's on, that's on my bucket list before I get too old. And, and just before we close, what's the latest um, campaigns and stuff from the Angling Trust? How's how's things going there? I mean, I, I think when it started, what is it now? Twelve, thirteen years ago, um, people had grave doubts about what it would do, and I think it's been on um, an upward incline all the time, and has been in, on a massively upward 
positive curve since the work it did during COVID for angling and anglers that drew people's attention to it that had, you know, had previously had no idea of what it really did and just thought it was, you know, the NFA with a knob on it. And, and it, you know, which it certainly isn't. How's things looking there? Pretty good, actually. I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the anglers, uh, quite a solitary group. They're a very disparate group of people. We will talk about all the different types of angling now, and you and I are a rare breed of all, all around them. A lot of angling takes place in silos. You know that. And people don't necessarily see the need for a national voice. Uh, but actually, when the man stood up and said, you can't leave your house, you can't go fishing, suddenly people thought, my God, how do, how, how do we move this forward? And that's, of course, where the Angling Trust earns its spurs. Uh, and ever since that time, we've seen good increases in membership, uh, we've been very effective at fighting off angling bans. Uh, we had that terrible situation down in Seven Oaks in Kent uh, last year where the local wildlife trust wanted to stop stop Bromley and District uh, from uh, fishing on the water that they carefully managed for 75 years. We got that overturned. We got the angling bans overturned on the Admiralty Pier in Dover. And also... Uh, Amber Gravels. And the Amber Gravel Pits, yeah, uh, up, in, up, up in Nottingham. Maybe it's just going fish to Trent. So that was that was a double win. So we've been very effective. I, you know, we 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 do have the ear of of government ministers. We do get listened to not all the time. Obviously, uh, we are credited as an effective uh, campaigning organisation. I also think amongst the sort of wider environmental groups, we bring something else to the table. You know, because we bring a different demographic there. Because angling is so diverse, because there are an awful lot of of people from from all different social backgrounds fish. We bring a, a, a slightly different dimension to the table than, say, the average membership of a, of a wildlife trust or or Greenpeace or or, or whatever. Um, and you know, without blowing our own trumpet, we do what we do with with very limited resources. You know, we do know how to work the system. We do know how to get ourselves heard. Uh, and and you know, it's important that not only angling has a voice in the corridors of power but it has an effective voice in the corridors of power and yeah i think the last few years we've been particularly effective and i, I hope it will continue to stay that way we've got some very good people and uh, uh and uh, we've got a great story to tell great stuff indeed um now it's only what is it tw- 21 days today we will be standing together with, if if um, the good Lord spares us and the creeks don't rise, as another broadcaster famously says, uh, on the banks of the River Test, um, eating bacon sandwiches in the morning, some magical lunch that will be produced from nowhere at lunchtime, and hopefully in between catching some decent roach, chub, grayling, and I want a big dice. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that, seeing you and the other guys down there. I only see, if I'm lucky, once a year. This will be the first time for three or four years, I think, that I've seen them. And um, hopefully that will be a good day. And we can uh, we can carry on conversing about angling, politics, and Lord knows what else, because there's sure to be something else. And um, I look forward to it a lot. Martin, thanks so much for giving up your time today. I've re- I know it's valuable to you. I've really enjoyed our chat. And... Um, as I say, we'll continue it in three weeks' time. I'll see you on the river. If you want those days, bring some casters and I'll, I'll show you the spot. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Martin Salter. It was about the same length as normal, but definitely contained more words. If it's your first Strange Boat experience, you can hear plenty more by subscribing to the podcast, as well as liking and, please, sharing. I'll be back soon for another voyage. So from me, Keith Arthur, it's thanks for listening and tight lines.
Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.